The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So John 21, we come to our final study in John's Gospel. Luke 22 is where we're going to start. Uh, before I do that, I'm going to pray, and we're going to include the Harford family in our prayers. Jeff Harford, uh, one of our men uh, for many years here, uh, retired military, did many uh, deployments, uh, flew Apaches for a long time, and was a leader of many of our young men in scouting, uh, passed away unexpectedly Friday night. So pray for uh, his wife, Janet, and son, Hunter, as uh, they navigate those deep waters as we do as a church family. So uh, God has taken a lot of our stellar men home to glory in the uh, last few months, and we continue to pray for those families. So let's pray. Fathers, we open the word in a minute. We pray that you would let us see the truth in it, that you would uh, help us to have eyes that see and ears that hear, and then we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. Father, I pray for Janet, for Hunter, and for their family, Lord, during this time of grief, that you would be their sustenance and their strength, and that the body of Christ would rally around them and love them and care for them in their grief and their time of mourning. Father, we thank you for loving us the way you do and being a father who welcomes home the prodigal, as we'll see in a few moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You ever blurt something out and wish you could reel those words right in? I mean, you just cast them out there and you want to reel them back in, or maybe you hit the send button, or maybe you uh, do it on an email or a text message, and you think, man, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could take that back. Uh, there was a man who was standing, who's in his uh, late 50s, standing in front of a full-length mirror. He turned to his wife after taking a long look at himself and said, you know, babe, he says, I, I look in this mirror and I see an aging guy. He said, uh, my hair is graying, my chest is sagging, my muscles are leaving, and I've got a belly that I've never had before. He said, would you just encourage me and tell me something positive to make me feel better about myself? And so she looked at him and said, well, at least your eyesight is still good. It was not Bev, by the way, who did that, okay? <laughs> although she could, although she could, okay? But uh, I imagine that woman wished she could have those words reeled back in. I hope she would want that, right, ladies? And uh, take them back. And I I'm going to tell you that in the passage we look at today, perhaps the words spoken by Peter are some of the words of all of history that a person wishes they could reel back in. When Peter said a third time, I don't know that man. I'm convinced that those haunting words are words that Peter wishes he could have reeled back in. Peter, you gotta love him. This fisherman turned disciple whom we have seen blurt out just about everything imaginable whenever Christ speaks to the disciples. Peter, this man who followed Christ closely but would fall hard. And it's, it's easy to love Peter because as we study him, many of us identify with Peter. It's hard not to agonize with Peter when we read this section of his denial, but it's easy for us to rejoice when Peter's restored. And so we're going to look at Peter, but here's what I want to remind you. Even though Peter is the focus of this passage, it's really a passage about our Savior. It's a passage about the Lord Jesus Christ and the type of God that he is and the type of friend he is. And sometimes I think whenever this passage is taught, and I've taught it in the past, our focus is so much on Peter that we neglect the central character here because John has already told us in his gospel, he's written these words that we might see that Christ is the, that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so as we kind of tie up the loose ends of John's gospel, 
I, we're going to look at Peter almost uh, entirely this message, but I'm going to come back and remind you that everything that John has written points to Jesus, our Savior. So we're going to look at Peter, a guy who had uh, some faults in his foundation. I've entitled this message, A Broken Heart Becomes a Grateful Heart. So Peter was a rock with faults. I call him a rock because his name was Simon. And when Jesus looked at him, he called him rock. That's what he called him. That's what the word Peter means. And he looks at him and uh, he sees a man who is going to love him deeply, but fall hard. But Peter's story that we're going to read today initially is a story of a broken heart because of his rejection of the Savior. We've looked at this in John's gospel. I want to look at it in Luke's gospel for a few minutes. The scenario that you're aware of, we've taught it a couple of times now in John's gospel. It's Passover time. The disciples have gathered in the upper room. Christ has told the disciples one of them would betray him. They've identified Judas as the betrayer. And now we see that there's also going to be a denier. And uh, Luke's gospel reads a little differently than John's gospel. Look at Luke 22:31 with me. So Jesus turns to Simon or to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. And so Jesus says, Peter, here's a warning to you. Satan is going to come. He's going to attack you. And, and there's going to be failure on your part, Peter. But I, I want you to know you can become strengthened again. And you can strengthen the brothers through that. So, Peter, I want you to know that there's a fault line developing in your heart. And that fault line is going to have a, a huge crevice in it. And you're going to fall through it. And Peter, as you would expect, has a response that only Peter would give. He said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both prison and to death. Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. Lord, I, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to prison if that's what it takes. I'm ready to die for you right now if that's what it takes. And by the way, in Matthew's gospel, we see Peter's not the only one who says that, but the other disciples do as well. Peter declared, you don't have to die with you. I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. And so they're all there, but in a few hours, they're going to be running like cats being chased by dogs. Even though they make this vow, even though they make this promise, even though they take this oath and said, we'll go to prison and we'll never deny you. We'll go to prison and die for you. We're going to find that that was broken pretty soon. And, and so the word that Christ gives to them and to Peter is in verse 34, Peter, I say to you, for the cock, before the rooster crows today, you have denied that you know me three times. Peter, three times. You're going to stand and say, I don't know this man. And those are the words that I'm convinced that Peter would love to be able to reel in. Three times Peter stood and denied our Savior. Like the rest of us, Peter had faults in his foundation. And those faults would be revealed in a major way. The cracks in Peter's foundation would be fully exposed this night. And it's not once, not twice, but three times Peter would deny the Savior. I've often wondered in my mind what that scene was like. Because in the other gospel, it tells us after the cock crowed, Jesus looked at Peter and Peter wept. Peter wept. And the particular Greek word, Greek word used there is a word that talks about uh, when a person is grieving. Weeping is not something you get a hold on. Weeping is something that has a hold on you. This is a person in mourning and that's Peter's life right now. He's in mourning because of that. And the moment their eyes met, the moment their eyes met after that cock crowed, Jesus knew what Peter had done. And Peter felt the weight of all his guilt, all his shame through his denial. 
Mel Gibson captures a little bit of what that looked like in The Passion of Christ. I'll show you just a little brief video of that. And imagine, if you will, the emotions of Peter especially during this particular time of denial. Watch this. the eyes of our Savior locked upon Peter's eyes. All the pent-up emotions, all the guilt, all the shame of denial came cascading upon his shoulders. At that moment, at that moment, Peter experienced the great pain of his own denial. The great pain of turning from the one that loved him and that he had loved. As I read that account, I can't help but think how difficult it must have been, how heavy it must have been for him. And as all this came cascading upon him, and as he runs through the courtyard, I imagine wanting to take those words back. He's just screaming, God, God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And Peter rejects the Savior. Three different times around a campfire, he rejects our Savior. Well, what if the story ended there? What if that was the end of the story? What if Peter went back to Galilee and went fishing and nothing else took place? What if he ended his life as a miserable failure, never to be seen from or heard from again in the spiritual life? 
What if he got stuck in the mire and the muck of failure and of guilt? I've shared with you when I was a little kid, my grandparents owned a farm in central Louisiana and we would try and go to visit them every month, every six weeks or so and spend a couple of weeks in the summer. And one of the things that fascinated myself and all the cousins was the farm next door because there was a pig farmer there. I don't know if you're a city kid in New Orleans, you don't see pigs too often, except bacon on your plate, actually. And so we would make to that fence and go and look at those pigs. And the thing that was amazing to me is they were always mired in the muck, always mired in the muck. It seemed like every time we went there, that, that, that neighbor had probably 30 or 40 pigs out there. And he had this pond and they, they would just mire themselves down there, not wanting to get out. We could call for them. We'd hold corn in our hands and they would never come. They just loved being stuck in the mire and stuck in the muck. I've seen the same thing in 37 years of pastor. I've seen people stuck in the, in the mire and muck of sin and of guilt and of shame. The mire and the muck of spiritual apathy and not calling upon God. Being in the middle of a bad marriage and not doing anything about it. Mired in the pit of discouragement, of addiction, of, of judging other people and the, the muck of jealousy, the muck of uh, envy, the, the muck of anger and not doing anything about it. Just wallowing, just wallowing. And if Peter had stayed there, if Peter's guilt had kept him there, if the Savior had not come to him, I wonder what it would have been like for him. See, one of the things we recognize is we're all going to fail, right? In the spiritual life, every one of us is going to fail. The scriptures say all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you think you haven't sinned, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because then you'd be lying and that's your first sin right there, right? But if you think you haven't sinned, give me five minutes with your spouse and we can prove that differently, right? Won't take that long, maybe about two minutes. We're all going to fail. The question is, what do we do with that failure? How are you going to respond to it? Failure doesn't have to be final. There are a lot of people that have failed and then become successes in life. See if you can guess who this person is. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games that I've played in. 26 times I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again. That's why I continue to try to succeed. Who do you think that is? NBA player, Michael Jordan, somebody got it. How'd you like to have him on your team? Or aren't you glad that he didn't stop after missing the game-winning shot five times, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times, 25 times? Here's another one for you. Uh, Here's another sports illustration for you. Uh, here's a baseball player. He set the major league record for strikeouts at that time with 1,316 times. He struck out 1,316 times. He still holds the record for five consecutive strikeouts in a World Series game. Five times he came up and struck out. Who do you think that might be? Some would say the greatest baseball player of all time, Babe Ruth. But Babe Ruth would say, I failed often, but I knew I had to continue on. You see, failure doesn't have to be final. Here's another one. This comes out of the political realm. Maybe you would want this guy to serve your country. Failed in a business, declared bankruptcy. Defeated for his first run in state legislature. Failed in business. Finally elected to state legislature a second time he ran. Defeated for the speaker of the legislature. Defeated for Congress the first time. Elected to Congress, then defeated for Congress a second time. Defeated for his first run at Senate defeated for vice president, defeated his second run for senator, and finally elected president of the United States. You know who he is, don't you? Abe Lincoln. Imagine if he had quit early on. 
And one of the things I look at this passage and I prayed this week, so Lord, if there's anybody in the three services at TBC who's about to quit the spiritual life, I pray this message would not fall upon deaf ears. I pray this message would not stop. Bev and I, as you know, did a conference two weeks ago overseas and we were doing that conference. One of the men came to me after and said, I did a message on not quitting, not out of this passage, a different passage. And he said, Pastor Gary is on the verge of quitting. (laughs) It's on the verge of quitting, it's discouraging. In the international churches of Europe right now, they have 60% turnover every year. You imagine if we had to replace 60% of TBC every single week? So we're ministering to these pastors and it's a, it's a spiritually dead area. And he said, I'm about to give up. He's in a small church in Germany, about 30 people. He says, I'm about to give up, but I have new hope. The message resonated with him. And so I prayed this week in my office early on. Where is there one person in here in these three hours about to lay aside the spiritual life because of guilt or shame, because of sin they won't get out of? Lord, would you prick that heart today? Would you touch them in deep places? Because you see, Peter didn't stay in the muck. Peter didn't stay mired in the muck that he found himself in. The muck of shame, the muck of guilt, the muck of despair, the muck of failure, the muck of, I mean, Peter had to beat himself up over and over and over again. Don't you imagine every time Peter heard a rooster crow after that, he had a tinge of guilt? I mean, you can imagine what that's like. A number of years ago, we were in Tanzania doing a pastor's conference and uh, Bev was not with me, so I'm in a hotel room by myself and uh, we're, we're kind of out in the, in the boonies and uh, there was a rooster that parked himself on the roof right above my room. He started crowing at 4 a.m. every morning. Now, I'm deaf. I take these hearing aids out, I'm deaf. That was the loudest rooster in the whole world. I thought of about a thousand ways to kill and cook that rooster while I was there. Every time I heard him, it was like, I'm gonna get that sucker. Here's Peter, an agrarian culture. He hears a rooster day after day after day after day. Well, here's the good news, John 21. He didn't have to continue in that guilt and shame. He didn't have to carry that burden of despair because Jesus is in the business of reconciliation. In Peter's heart that was filled with despair and brokenness, is replaced by a grateful heart because of the restoration of our Savior. It's a very familiar passage to you. We've looked at it here several times over the years. Look at John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifests himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. It's another name for the Sea of Galilee. So what are they going to do? You failed your friend. You've fallen hard. You're distant from him. What are you going to do? You've thought of every name to call yourself. You know that you failed. You know that you've fallen. You know that you're distant. You know that you're struggling. You've had sleepless nights. What are you going to do? Well, you go back to the familiar. So what does Peter do? Goes fishing, right? Goes fishing. That's what you do. You go back to the familiar. And so Peter says in verse three, I'm gone fishing. And they said, we're coming too. So they went out and they got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. I've been on fishing trips like that many times. You go out and you don't catch anything. Jesus, is, Jesus has orchestrated this entire thing. He's going to bring back a pleasurable memory to the disciples and specifically to Peter. And he's going to take him to a painful event to restore him. The, 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 the pleasurable memory has to do when he first called the disciples. Remember when he first called the disciples, they had spent the evening fishing. You fish on the Sea of Galilee at night. They came in, they had caught nothing. 
And he says, lower your nets. And they lower their nets and all of a sudden they begin to pull on the nets and the nets are filled full with fish and they can't believe this. They are fishermen by profession. And here's this guy on the seashore telling him, you don't fish the Sea of Galilee in the morning. They fish it anyway, their nets are full and they recognize who he is. And Jesus says, follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. So that was a pleasurable memory. That's when the disciples followed after them. And so Jesus orchestrates this entire scene. The disciples are out fishing. They come to shore. They don't have any fish. So look at what it says in verse five. Children, do you have any fish? No, they said. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. And they cast therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. There's actually 153 fish. It says that in a few minutes or in a few verses. The disciple there for whom Jesus loved, that's how John identifies himself, the beloved apostle, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter couldn't wait. He's in his skivvies and he puts on an outer garment. He jumps in the Sea of Galilee, swims ashore while the rest of the guys pull the boat and the nets in. And so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire laid and fish placed on it and there was bread. And he says, bring some of the fish you caught. And so Simon Peter went up, he drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. A lot of people have asked the significance of 153. You know why it's significant? Because it's 153. Really, I think the significance here is to show us that John was present there. Who else would count the number of fish in the net? He's saying, hey, we saw this with our own eyes. This happened. We want you to know we saw the resurrected Savior. We counted the fish in the net. There were 153. And by the way, that makes us pretty good fishermen. No, it doesn't, John. He told you where to fish, actually. But here we, here, he, says, uh, he says, come and we'll have breakfast. And I says, who are you knowing as the Lord? None of them would ask that question. So Jesus took the bread. He gave, them and the, 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 gave it to them and the fish likewise. Jesus manifests himself a third time disciples since he was raised from the dead. Then he calls Peter aside. He calls Peter aside. Peter? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter looks at Jesus, those same eyes that had pierced him when he denied him. Those same loving eyes. He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. And a third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know above all, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then tend my sheep. Three times around a fire, Peter denied Christ. It's a painful memory. Three times around a fire, our Savior reconciles Peter to himself. When Peter came in, the Lord didn't cluck his tongue and said, some friend you are. Some coward you are. When I needed you the most, you deserted me. When I needed somebody to come alongside me, you weren't there. Peter, you made this bold, brass promise and you didn't keep your word, did you? That's not what our Lord does when we stray away from him. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then I love what Christ does next. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself up and you used to walk wherever you wished and you're going to grow old. You will stretch out your hands and someone will gird you and bring you where you don't wish to go. Peter, you're going to die. He said this signifying his kind of death that would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to Peter, 
those words Peter had heard three years before when they had fished earlier. Hey, Peter, follow me. What Jesus is saying in those simple words, follow me, is it's okay. You can come home. Peter, it's okay. It's all forgiven. Peter, you you don't have to remain in the muck and the mire of your guilt and your shame and your despair. And once again, he hears those familiar words, Peter, follow me. And you're not going to be fishing for fish. You're going to be fishing for men. And so Jesus follows this pleasurable memory with a painful memory. And he brings it full circle. And he says, Peter, all is not lost. You can continue on. Our relationship is restored. And there's a changed heart in Peter. And we know about that from Acts chapter 2 and other passages in Acts because Peter goes into the very place where Christ was arrested, where Christ was crucified, and he begins to preach the gospel, the good news. And he says, you men of Israel, you delivered him up. This was God's predetermined plan. This is in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching. You delivered him up. It was God's predetermined plan. You killed him with your own hands. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is alive and resurrected. And 3,000 people believed that day and they were baptized by Peter. We should say, glory, hallelujah because the prodigal came home and was restored and used by God in great ways. So let me wrap this up this way. Here's the first thing I want you to notice about this passage. You have a savior, you have a friend who was a friend to you like he was a friend to Peter. And he says, you wanna come home, you can come home. You feel far away from me right now? You don't have to be distant. You, You can come back to me right now. And so if you are the prodigal who has made a promise or taken an oath or a vow and you realize you're forsaken that or maybe your heart has grown spiritually cold, maybe you realize the distance between you and the Savior. This is is an example of the parable of the prodigal son. The son who ran away and denied the father, but now he came home. And if you remember, the searching father was always looking for his son to welcome him home. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. This is the prodigal son being lived out in full color, technicolor, right before us. And he says, Peter, you can come home. And Peter does. And so can you. So for some of you this morning, you made that vow, that oath, like Peter did. Hey, Lord, I'm going to go to prison with you. I'm going to die for you. And right now you've broken some vows and you haven't kept kept some oaths. You said, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start spending time in your word with you. I'm going to start worshiping you on my own. I'm going to be, be, you name it, whatever it is, be generous. I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to be loving, whatever it is. And you know you've fallen flat. My prayer for you this day is you'll recognize that the prodigal is always welcome home. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The second thing I want you to learn is not only is a prodigal welcome home, but failure does not have to be final. Your failure, whatever it is, never has to be final. You can always get up and continue on through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the encouragement of Jesus was to Peter to go out and tell these brothers that, that you've fallen, you've fallen deep and you've fallen hard, but never to give up. I love what John Chrysostom said. And it really captures everything in this passage. The danger is not that we fall, 
But the danger is that we remain on the ground after we fall. Several years ago, when our oldest grandsons were four years old, uh, they were playing their first soccer game in College Station, Texas. <laughs> they were playing in College Station. And uh, we were going to go check out their first soccer game. So Bev and I are driving from Temple. They're in College Station. We arrive a little late. The game is already started. You ever see four-year-olds play soccer? It's the greatest comedy act in the world. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, they, they, they collide with one another, they run, they're like a bunch of ants, they, they're just everywhere. Normally there's one kid who can kick the ball, everybody else just follows, right? And uh, then most of them, somewhere after about three minutes into the game, they could care less what's happening. They're waving at folks on the sidelines, looking for their friends in the other game, and thinking about the snow cone at the end of the game. I, I mean, it's hard to keep their attention. So we arrive late to this game. The game's already started. It's a few minutes old, and uh, we get in our lawn chairs, get them out, and uh, Bev begins to holler for the kids. And I, I don't know what you holler. I don't know if you can remember. She, she begins to holler. And Jackson, our oldest grandson, he's the oldest by two minutes, I think, and he'll let you know that, older than his twin. And, and so Jackson hears Bev's voice, Honey's voice, and he stops in the middle of the game, and he turns and makes a beeline for her. And he jumps in her lap. And he, he will not get off her lap. I mean, his dad finally has to peel him off. We promised him snow cones the rest of his life, actually. And we finally peel him off, and he goes back in the game. Got back in the game. Now, I wish I could tell you he's going to be the next Ronaldo or Beckham and Namor or whoever these soccer guys are. I don't know their names, but... He's not. He peaked at about age six, actually. So. <laughs> but here's the point of all that. He got back in the game. And I know in my heart that there are folks here that need to get back in the game. You've walked away from the Savior. You're not as close to the Savior. You've allowed guilt and shame to a place where it can be joy and rejoicing. And John writes these words a little later in a book called First John. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there doesn't need to be any barrier between you and our good Savior. You can get back in the game today. John says, I've written these things that you may believe that he is the Christos, the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that by believing, you can have life in his name. Father, we thank you for giving us the gospel of John. We thank you for sending your son, our savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made in the spirit of God. We thank you for being the one who convicts us and guides us into all righteousness. For some of you this morning, you're not in the game. You haven't gotten the game. You've never personally trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're religious. You know all about him. Perhaps your heart is beating out of your chest right now. You're thinking, that guy up there hasn't taken his eye off of me yet. It's really the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. And you have an opportunity right now to say, Lord Jesus... I trust you for the forgiveness of my sin. I desire for you to be my savior. 
and accept the sacrifice you made on my behalf. That's how you enter the game of the spiritual life. And for some of you, as we've said over and over this morning, distance has become between you and the Savior. You've made vows, promises, oaths with good intentions to do or to be a certain way. And you're filled with guilt and shame because it hadn't happened. And the Savior stands before you right now with his arms open wide for you to come home, to walk with him and to honor him all the days of your life. Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, one in three, we honor you. We thank you for this word. In the name of Jesus, we go our way. Amen and amen. Bless you.